Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our evening Bible study as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. I'm glad everyone's here tonight. I hope everyone had a good uh, Lord's Day afternoon. And now let's get ready to dig into Revelation chapter 20, which we started uh, two weeks ago. And now uh, we will finish, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully tonight we'll finish it. I, I think we will. I'm pretty sure we will. Um, again, this great chapter in the millennium, this chapter which has caused a lot of discussion, debate, division within the church, uh, people arguing over various millennial views. We went over those last time. We'll kind of review them a little bit tonight. Uh, but again, I, I, I want to stress here at the outset, again, the idea of humility and charity. I mentioned that several times last time, and I want to continue to impress that upon you. Because, again, this is a debated topic. And part of the reason why it's a debated topic is because chapter 20 in Revelation is the only place you see this reference to a thousand-year millennial reign. It's the only place. And oftentimes in Scripture, we interpret Scripture with other Scripture. Because Scripture itself is the infallible rule of, of, of interpretation for itself. It's called, uh, it's a fancy Latin phrase called the analogia fide, or the analogy of faith, which says that Scripture is to be used to interpret Scripture. And in short, what that means is that the obscure portions of Scripture should be seen in light of the more um, known, the more familiar passages of Scripture. The problem is, sometimes you get passages of Scripture that are not clear. And there are no other real references that you can draw from, at least directly, in other portions of Scripture to help you. And the millennium is one of those. So that's why you have so many different views. If this were a view like justification by faith alone, then there would be one true view, and the rest would be considered false. They would be false gospels, and they would be heresy. But here you've got three competing, you know, four competing views, really, and they're all biblical in the sense that they draw their arguments from the Bible. And they're all within the pale of Christianity, so we need, again, humility to recognize it's difficult and that we are fallen creatures and that we can only hope to attain to a measure of the truth. So we should be hum hum humble and we should be chari charitable. We shouldn't look at people who have a different view as being somehow lesser or outside of the Christian faith. So again, I'm going to stress that because... Most of us here hold to a particular view. Some of us don't. But you go to another church and our view would be considered wrong. Or maybe even depending on which church you go to, they may look at our view as being heresy. But be that as it may, humility and charity need to be used here. Now I'll read the entire passage, verses, verses 1 through 10, for our under, uh, just to get all of the context tonight. But we'll again be focusing on verses 4 through 10. So here we go, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for, their, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or, its, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who, was de- who had deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So there you have it. Again, the millennial passage before us. Now, just want to take a little time to recap what we saw last week. And I hope you do have your uh, four views of the millennium handout with you. Uh, Last week, um, we started, of course, not last week, sorry, last time, two weeks ago. Last time we began our study of chapter 20. This is the seventh of seven cycles that we see in Revelation between chapter 4 and chapter 20, so it is the final one. Seven, of course, being the number of perfection. It is the complete one. Uh, it, is a, it is a cycle which looks at, a, at this church age from sort of, you know, it, it looks at the entire scope of the church age from beginning to end. The beginning of the, of the millennial period to the end of the millennial period. And as such, it is similar to the, uh, the visions we saw in chapter 12. Ooh, did that come out? <laughs> uh, similar to the ones we saw in chapter 12 through 14, which also look at this entire period of time. Uh, other visions in this cycle, other, I should, other uh, vision cycles that we see in this, in this uh, span of Revelation, we'll look at parts of it or we'll look at focus on certain things. But here again, the, this... Chapter 20 looks at the entire scope of this period of time where we are looking at here. Now, last time, of course, we also um, discussed the four prominent views on the millennium. If you have your handout again handy, I I would suggest you take it out now. We're just going to go over this real quick. But there are four views, uh, two of them are pre-millennial views. Two of them are post-millennial views. And again, um, your view on the millennium is what is how you interpret the return of Christ vis-a-vis the millennium. Does he return before the millennium and usher in a, in a, a, a thousand-year reign? Or does he return after the millennium and then usher in the eternal state? That's really the difference between the major views here. Now, two of them, again, are premillennial. Two of them see Jesus returning before this period called the millennium. And the difference between the two is really, in the dispensational view, you've got the tribulation broken out. You've got a pre-tribulational rapture where the church is taken up into heaven. Then you have a seven-year tribulation period, and then after which Jesus comes with his saints uh, they have the Battle of Armageddon, and then the millennial period begins. In the historic pre-mill view, you just have the church being raptured up and then immediately returning with Christ, and then the millennium is, is, is inaugurated, I should say. Now, in both of these views, the millennium is an earthly kingdom. It is a, it is a period of time here on earth in which... A golden age is present, but more so than just an earthly golden age, it is, a, it is a period of peace and justice because Jesus is reigning and ruling physically here on earth. Now, in the dispensational view, most dispensational people will see the millennium as a literal 1,000-year period. In the historic pre-mill view, uh, it's mixed. Some will see it as 1,000 years, literally. Some will see it as just a long, indeterminate period of time. But again, both views see the millennium as Christ reigning here on earth physically with believers for this period of time, after which then there'll be a rebellion, then there'll be a resurrection of unbelievers only, because in both premillennial views, the final resurrection is 
done in two phases, if you will. Uh, one before the, uh, the millennium, one after the millennium. You have the resurrection of unbelievers, you have final judgment, and then the ushering in of the eternal state. Now flipping it over, the two post-millennial views, because amillennialism is really just a form of post-millennialism. Um, if you recall, um, there was no term amillennial before the 20th century. The term came to being um, as a way to sort of distinguish a version of post-millennialism that started to emerge in the 19th century. So the amillennial view is sort of opposed to this version of post-millennialism. But in both of these views, Christ returns after the millennium. Now, in the, in the post-millennial view, the church age is chugging along. Again, remember the church age is this period of time between the advents, right? Between the first coming of Christ and then the second coming of Christ in glory. So the church age is chugging along, and then at some point, we don't know when, uh, but the millennium will begin. And it will be a period, again, a golden age period in which evil is suppressed, the gospel goes forth uh, in power, and many converts come to faith. A great revival uh, takes place. <clears throat> and justice will reign, and the church will have a strong influence in society. And then afterwards, there'll be a little rebellion at the end, and then Jesus will return, and then, ush, you, know, then you see the things that we normally see at the return of Christ. Resurrection of believers, resurrection of unbelievers, final judgment, new heavens and new earth. The Amil view sees the millennium as now. And that's the main difference between the Amil view and all the other views. Because all the other views see the millennium as sort of a distinct period of time that happens in the future. Whereas the Amil view sees the millennium now, the millennium is the period of the church age. It is, it, the millennium is, is the period between the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ and his return in glory at the end of the age. Christ is reigning now, as we'll see in a moment. And then at Christ's return in glory, again you see the general resurrection of believers and unbelievers, the final judgment, and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. So that's just our recap of the four views. And then we looked at verses 1 through 3 last time, which dealt with the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. And as we noted, the reason why we spent so much time last time and a little bit of time this time going over these four millennial views is because there are going to be things in this passage that are going to come up, and depending on your millennial view will, depend, will determine how you interpret those things. And one of them, the first one, is the binding of Satan. What does the binding of Satan mean? Because that's what we see in verses 1 through 3. Satan is bound in, one, in, in some way. How is he bound? Well, I mean, we see it, right? The, 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 the vision that John sees is a great angel coming down with a chain and a key, and he takes the chain, he binds Satan, and he casts him into the bottomless pit and seals it on top of him. Presumably the key is to lock and unlock the, the abyss. And he's cast into the abyss. And we see, of course, in verse 3, the purpose for that. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now again, both pre-mill views see the binding of Satan as essentially absolute, as total. During the millennium period, which again is at some point in the future, during the millennium period, Satan is bound. He is unable to do anything. Thus, the millennial kingdom goes forth. Thus, this great reign of righteousness and justice with Christ, the perfect king, on the throne of David. And the millennium is then seen as that period of time in which 
All of the promises uh, made to Israel in the Old Testament are literally fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom. So Satan is bound. Um, it's a total binding. And of course, things that suggest that are he is cast into the pit, the pit is shut upon him, and a seal is set on it. So that would seem, to, you know, he's bound, cast, set, and sealed. So it seems like he would be totally bound, unable to do anything. And the question was asked last time about that, and I, uh, and I admit it. It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a strong argument for the pre-mill view of a literal binding of Satan, a total binding of Satan. And it's not as if any of these, pre, uh, any of these millennial views are without their strengths and weaknesses. They all have strengths and weaknesses. If they didn't have strengths and, and, strengths and weaknesses, then no one would believe them. Right? If one just had a bunch of weaknesses, that, that view would would fade from, you know, from existence. But the reason these three views, these four views persist is because they have strengths and they have weaknesses. Now, the post-mill saw the binding of Satan as a serious binding of Satan so that he will no longer deceive the nations, in other words, so that the gospel can go forth. And that's, that's what happens during the millennial period. The church is... Is, during the church age, in the post-mill view, the church is going through periods of, of growth, of shrinkage, of waxing and waning, of peri- various periods of, of prominence and then uh, tribulation and so on and so forth. But during the millennial period, because of the binding of Satan, who is bound so he can no longer deceive the nations, the gospel now goes forth in great power. And chapter 19 is seen not so much as the return of Christ in glory at the end of the age, but the power of the gospel going forth and slaying the strongholds of enemies as people are converted en masse, slain, if you will, by the power of the sword, the word of God, the gospel, and coming to faith in Christ. So a great revival, much greater than any revival we've ever seen. And a a great period of peace and justice, not total, but, but the church has a strong influence during this millennial period because Satan is bound. Of course, the Amil view sees Satan as bound. Again, that what, what convinces me is the fact that John gives us the reason why he's bound. That so that is a purpose statement. It tells you the reason for the clause before it. Satan is bound for the purpose of, for the reason of, in order that he should deceive the nations no more. And if you look at verse 8, we see that when Satan is released, he will what? He will go out and deceive the nations. What is the purpose of deceiving the nations? He deceives the nations to gather them together to do battle with the people of God. So Satan is bound during the millennium, so he cannot do that. Okay? Satan is bound during the millennium so that he cannot deceive the nations and gather them together for the final battle until it's time. And that's at the end of the millennium. But also, in part, with the post-millennial view, we also see the binding of Satan so that the gospel can go forth. He can no longer deceive the nations, no longer deceive the ethne, the Gentiles. And we argued last time that um, up until the time of Christ, right, the people of God were mostly Jews. There were some Gentiles, but mostly Jews. But God had intended that the gospel would be for all, that, that the blessings of Abraham that he promised to him in, in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But until the time of Christ, the nations were held in darkness. That's why we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 4, which quotes Isaiah chapter 9, that says that the light, of the, uh, the light of Christ has come into the world so that the Gentiles who have been in darkness have seen a great light. And Satan is bound so that this light can go forth, that the gospel can go forth, and then the nations can come in 
to the church. The, 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 the people of God are expanded to include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The question was asked after the study last time, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 12, the idea of the binding of Satan, John, or I should say Matthew, gives a hint to it in his gospel in chapter 12. I'm sorry I'm taking so much time on this, but I want to feel like I'm re-preaching the message again. <laughs> but um, in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, uh, we're told here that one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that, he, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The binding of Satan is so that Jesus can plunder the strong man's house. Satan was holding the nations in darkness. He has now been bound so that the light of Christ can go and Jesus can plunder the strong man's house. And many people can be gathered together for Jesus. And again, the binding of, of Satan can be seen as what we saw in Revelation chapter 12 as well, when Satan is cast out of, of heaven at the ascension of Christ, which is the beginning of the millennial period by our, our argument here. Um, verse uh, 9 of chapter 12 of Revelation, after the great battle in heaven, which takes place after the child is caught up to God in his throne. So Jesus is enthroned. He has received the kingdom. He is reigning now from heaven. And at that point, a great battle occurs and Satan is cast out. Now, he is bound in a sense that he can no longer deceive the nations, but he is not totally bound because what? We see him going around and a woe is pronounced to the inhabitants of the earth for the devil has come down and he has great wrath because he knows his time is short. But he can no longer deceive the nations until the time that he is released. So that was the binding of Satan. And now... As we come into this passage, we're going to see two more points here of the millennium. So the millennium is, is, is characterized first by the fact that Satan is bound during it. The second is that it is characteristic, it is characterized, I should say, by the fact that the saints reign with Christ during the millennium. And then third, we'll see that it's characterized by the fact that the satanic rebellion at the end of the millennium will be crushed. And that's what we're going to see now as we begin looking at verses 4 through 6. Again, the reigning of the saints. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, well, just as with the binding of Satan, depending on your millennial view, that will determine how you interpret what you see here in verses 4 through 6, what it means that the saints came to life and lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The first thing, of course, that we see here, that John sees here, is thrones. He sees thrones. 
So the question that we are led to ask then is, where are these thrones and who is sitting on these thrones? Now that word there, throne, the Greek word is thronos. Hey, it sounds like throne. The word thronos there appears in the New Testament 61 times. 61 times in the New Testament. 46 of them are in the book of Revelation. So there are a lot of thrones in the book of Revelation. Now, in the book of Revelation, all but two of those references to thrones have the thrones in heaven. All but two of them. The two are, if you again want to keep your place here, you can flip over to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 13. This is the persecuted church. Sorry, the compromising church. The third letter of the seven. And uh, starting in verse 12, Jesus writes to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in chapter 2, verse 13, that mention of throne is meant to indicate that there was a large you know, satanic pagan cult in, in Pergamos that was a, a threat to the church. And when it says where Satan dwells, it's almost in a sense saying the, the, this city is so corrupt, so evil, so full of the world that it's almost as if Satan's throne is there. But again, it's a throne that's on earth. Satan's throne is on earth. The second time where it doesn't refer to a throne in heaven is in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 10. This is in reference to the bowls being poured out. And this is the fifth bowl. Chapter 16, verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. So again, the throne of the beast, again, is on earth. So we've seen two references here to thrones in which they are on earth, and both of them are in reference to either Satan's throne or the beast's throne. In other words, wicked, worldly, human kingdoms that are anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-church. And here this is a judgment by God being poured out on the kingdoms of this world, on the kingdom of the beast, and on His throne. Just like what happened in Exodus when darkness came upon the land of Egypt. Now all the other references to thrones, if you want to take this one out for a moment, all the other references to thrones are references to thrones in heaven. All of them. All of them. Now, does that mean that this reference to a throne that you see here in verse 4, these thrones have to be in heaven? No. Does it suggest, perhaps, that they should be in heaven? I would like to think so. I think the overwhelming evidence of the usage of the word in Revelation suggests that these thrones are in heaven. But again, remember, your, your millennial view will determine what you believe regarding these thrones. And the two pre-millennial views will see these thrones on earth. Because Christ comes down to earth. He establishes the millennial kingdom on earth. And the saints are allowed to rule with him on earth. So these thrones in the premillennial view have to be on earth. I'm going to argue, and I think the weight of the exegetical evidence of how the word is used in Revelation suggests that these thrones are in heaven. God's throne is in heaven, and these thrones are in heaven. Again, keep your place here, and let's look at Daniel chapter 7. This should be familiar in the sense that we looked at this when we went through the book of Daniel some months ago. And in Daniel 7, we've referenced this many times through our study, 
in Revelation as well. And Daniel 7, of course, is that vision that Daniel gets of the four beasts, which corresponds quite nicely with the vision that John gets in Revelation 13 of the beast that is sort of like a composite of the four. But after he gets the vision of the four beasts, he is given a vision of the Ancient of Days. And we see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I, Daniel, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and his hair, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And then if you skip down to verse 22, uh, start in verse 21. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So these thrones in Daniel 7, he said thrones were put in place and then the Ancient of Days was seated. This is in heaven. This is the heavenly throne room that Daniel gets here. And then we see that the thrones there were for the saints of the Most High, and they are given the ability to judge. And that's what we're told here in chapter 20, verse 4. Because John sees the thrones, and he sees those who sat upon them. And he sees that judgment was committed to them, just like we saw in Daniel 7. And who did he see on the thrones? Well, look, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So here we see that the occupants of the thrones are the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. Now again, the question is, this reference to souls, is this like the immaterial part of your body, the soul as opposed to the body, or souls being used as sort of a catch-all term for the entire person. You know what I mean by that? You know, you could say, you know, there was a great revival and a thousand souls came to Christ. Well, you don't just say the immaterial part. When you say a thousand souls came to Christ, you're talking about a thousand people. And the word can mean that. Right, The word in Greek is psuche. We get the word psychology from it. Soul, study of the soul. Um, so the soul can refer to the immaterial part of the person as opposed to the body. Or it can be a, a term that you, is used to reference the entire body-soul uh, combination. So that's another, you know, again, based on your millennial view, That will determine on how you interpret the souls here. If you are pre-mill, the souls are resurrected saints. Right? Because if you again look at your sheet, both pre-mill views see after the church age the resurrection of believers. So believers who are dead are raised from the dead and given glorified bodies. Those who are still on earth at the time of of the rapture will be transformed into the twinkling of an eye and they will be caught up into the heavens to meet Christ in the heavens. So they are physically resurrected. And then when they return, whether it's immediately or after the seven-year tribulation period, they return physically with Christ and reign with Him for a thousand years. So the pre-mill view will see these souls as resurrected saints. The post-mill belief typically uh, will will see the souls here as converted believers. Again, remember, this thousand-year period is one in which the gospel goes forth in great power. Uh, Many conversions are come. So this is, in a sense, the new birth. Okay, These souls are the new birth. People are converted and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You see that at the end of chapter 4. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, the church, or sorry, the the Amil position sees these souls as the church triumphant. 
You may be like, what's that? Well, if you remember, we talked about this when we discussed uh, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 kind of gives you a, a two-fold view of the church. The church militant and the church triumphant. Uh, church militant, that's us right now here on earth. We're called militant because we are fighting the spiritual war that is uh, before us in this world. Uh, the church triumphant are those who have, who have gone on, right? They are now with the Lord in heaven. They are the church triumphant. So the Amil view sees these souls as the disembodied spirits during the intermediate state. They are with Christ. Christ is, in the, again, in the Amil view, Christ has ascended. He is now on His throne. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is reigning and ruling now. And His resurrected saints, or His saints that have died and have come to life, right? What Paul says in, in Philippians 1, for me to live as Christ, to die is what? Gain. Why? Because He goes to be with the Lord. So those who have died, that's what we see here, right? This, those who are seated on the thrones are those who have been martyred. They have been beheaded for their witness to Christ and the Word of God. Those who have not worshipped the beast or his image and have not t- received his mark. In other words, those who have not given in to the lusts of this world, the, the lure of the beast and the false prophet and received the mark. Now, it doesn't mean only that martyred saints get to reign with Him. It's referring to the church as a whole, and it sees the church as a martyred entity. Right? The church throughout her entire existence, to this day, is a martyred enemy entity, I should say. The church is a martyr church. We're not seeing martyrdom here in this country, but believe me, around the world, people are dying for their faith in Christ. And that has been the case since day one. So the Amil position sees these souls as those who have died and now they, are, they live and they reign with Christ. Now we see these souls in heaven earlier in Revelation chapter 6 when the fifth seal is broken. Chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened, that is Christ, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. Where is this altar? The altar is in heaven. The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. The same thing here. The souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So the souls of the martyrs under the altar, they have died and now they live and they reign with Christ. Now that phrase there in verse 4, and they lived, is the Greek word, Zason, which is uh, it's a third-person plural. It, it, it's the word zao, which means to come to life. And that word is the verb form of the word zoe, which means life. And it's used typically in John's writings to speak to eternal life, everlasting life, right? Uh, John 3.16, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not die but have zoe, Ionios Zoe, eternal life. It is the, that word that typically refers to the greater quality of life that we have in the age to come, the resurrection life. Now, again, the fact that John uses that word here would be a strong argument for a physical resurrection and for the pre mill view. But the fact that they live now and reign with Christ now, who is reigning in heaven now, would suggest that these are the saints who have died and passed on and they are with the Lord in a spiritual form. They are reigning in heaven with the Lord now. In verse 5 now we see, so these are those, uh, those who came to life are the saints, the ones who have died for the faith, 
the, the martyred church. And we see in verse 5, the rest of the dead, that would be the unbelievers, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And what it says here, this is the first resurrection, that is referring to what we see in verse 4, not what we see in verse 5. So you have the first resurrection. And then John gives another benediction. I think this is the fourth or fifth benediction of seven in the book. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. We'll stop there for a moment. So we see that during this millennial period, however you want to describe it, we see that thrones appear and the church is reigning with Christ. They came to life and reigned with Him for a thousand years. Whether that's physically here on earth, according to the pre-mill view, whether that's in a spiritualized sense here on earth, during the post-mill golden age view of the millennium, or whether that's happening now, with the saints reigning and ruling with Christ in heaven now during this church age, the millennium. Either way, that is the first resurrection. And blessed are the ones who partake of the first resurrection. Why? Because the second death has no power over them. And then we'll see that the rest of the dead, those who are not part of the first resurrection, will come to life And and, and they will not come to life again until the end of the thousand years. Now, the next question we need to ask ourselves is, we see this first resurrection and we see this second death. What is the connection between the first resurrection and the second death? Well, first you might ask, what is the second death? Well, for the second death, you need to flip over and look at verse 14 of chapter 20. This will be the passage we will consider next time, the great white throne judgment. But we see there uh, in verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 15, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the second death is the lake of fire. The second death is final judgment. Now, John here in Revelation uh, 20, verses 4 through 6, is making a connection between the first resurrection and the second death. And I think this this will help us to have a proper understanding of what the first resurrection is when we understand this connection. What is the connection between the first resurrection and the second death? Because they're connected. They are connected because John connects them here in in Revelation chapter 20. Now, if there's a first resurrection, there has to be a second resurrection, right? And if there's a second death, there has to be a first death, okay? You follow me so far? If you say first resurrection, second death, that implies a second resurrection and a first death. I'll give you a moment to get your brains wrapped around that one if you want to write that down. If there's a first resurrection and a second death, that implies that there's a second resurrection and a first death. Okay? Now, let's look at the resurrections. The first resurrection, I'm making the argument, is a spiritual resurrection. It is a resurrection of saints who have died Their spirits go to be with the Lord in the intermediate state. They are not dead in the sense that they are unconscious or or not uh, uh, experiencing anything. They are alive with Christ. They are beholding the beatific vision of Christ. They are in heaven with Christ, where it is far better. Pure gain. Where Paul says, if I depart from this earthly tent, I want to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So they are present with the Lord now. This first resurrection, I'm arguing, is a second, or I should say, is a spiritual resurrection. The second resurrection is what happens at the end of the age. A physical resurrection from the dead. 
We see that in uh, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw the great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled, and there was found no place for them. And then I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. The sea gave up the dead and all who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. It's the same general resurrection that we see in John chapter 5, verse uh, 28, where John says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth, just like Lazarus came forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The second resurrection, which is not mentioned here, is the physical resurrection. It's implied in verse 5. The rest of the dead did not, come, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. What happens at the end of the thousand years? Well, the great white throne judgment, when all the dead are raised. The first death is physical death. Right? We die. When we die, we're put into the graves. It's a physical death. Not much more needs to be said about that. The second death, which is described here as the lake of fire, is a spiritual death. Why do I say that? Because the physical, or I should say the the lake of fire, is one of constant, conscious, eternal torment. When we die physically, the body goes into the grave. Now the spirit goes on either to be with Christ or to go to Sheol or to Hades or hell, however you want to call it. But the body's in the, in, in, in the grave. The body no longer experiences anything. The body is inert and it decays and dissolves, right? But here the second death is one in the lake of fire, which burns forever, where Jesus says the, the fire shall not die out and the worm's hunger will not quench. So the second death has to be a a spiritual death, an eternal spiritual death. So now you see the connection. First resurrection, spiritual. Second death, spiritual. John makes this connection here. The first resurrection is connected and relates to the second death and the fact that they're both a spiritual form of either resurrection or death. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection in which believers go to be with the Lord. The second death is a spiritual death in which those who are condemned to hell are cast into the lake of fire where they do not die physically. They are experiencing torment forever. The second resurrection is a physical resurrection which happens at the end of the age when all the, all the dead will rise and they will go and be judged. The, second, the first death is also a physical death. I hope I'm being clear here. So I think this is a strong argument that this resurrection that is being talked about here, this reigning and ruling with Christ, is a physical, or I should say, is a spiritual reigning and ruling with Christ. Souls. Souls of dead believers who are now present with the Lord in the intermediate state, reigning and ruling with Him in heaven. In fact, Ephesians makes that point that even now we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. The already, not yet. So those who partake of the first resurrection are blessed because they here we see them, they serve as priests of God. They serve God in Christ. We are a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. And they shall reign with Him for a thousand years. So the, the beheaded Witnesses, the martyrs, the, 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 the church who has died during this millennial period, when they die, they are raised with Christ and reign with Him until the end of the millennial period. And now, as I look at the clock, I seem to be running short on time. I almost feel like I have to stop here. I thought I would get through this passage. I could try to rush through it, but I don't think it'll, it'll be worth any of our whiles. So, um, we'll stop here. I think this is a good stopping point anyway. So, uh, where you see next time, it says Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, 
guess what? We're putting that off again for another two weeks. I, I have to laugh because I remember when initially when I was looking at this, I thought, well, maybe I'll make this three lessons. And then I thought, well, no, I can make it one lesson. And guess what? It's going to be three lessons. Now you may be thinking, well, maybe if you wouldn't talk so much at the beginning, we could get through with this. But hopefully this is beneficial. Hopefully you see a use to this. And hopefully I think I'm making myself clear. Again, the reigning with the saints here. So let me just wrap this up and we'll, we'll call it good here. The reigning of the saints here with Christ in the millennial period. Again, are the, the, the thrones are in heaven because the vast majority of times you see thrones in the book of Revelation, they are in heaven. The only two times where they're not in heaven, one is described as Satan's throne in Pergamos and the other one is described as the throne of the beast during the fifth bowl being poured out. Both of those thrones are on earth but they are, they are uh, connected with evil, with Satan and his minions. Every other mention of thrones are thrones in heaven, right? The thrones in heaven in Revelation 4 are the 24 elders seated before him, representing the church, angelic representations of the church. So the thrones are in heaven. Those who are seated on the thrones are not physically resurrected believers. I'm just giving you my view, um, the Amil view. We went through the other views. They are the church triumphant, those who have died and gone to be with the Lord in the intermediate state. They are reigning and ruling for, with Christ during this period of time called the millennium, the church age, because Christ is reigning now. We don't wait until, the, we don't wait until some point in the future where Christ is reigning. He's reigning now. He is at the position of highest uh, privilege. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The ascension was a coronation, if you will. And we see here, of course, this first resurrection, which speaks of this spiritual resurrection of the saints to be with Christ in heaven. And it's connected to the second death, which is a spiritual death in which those who are condemned to die in the lake of fire will, will be there forever in eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. Uh, tormented day and night forever and ever, as we see at the end of chapter 20, verse 10 there. So that's it. That's uh, the reigning of the saints, verses 4 through 6. Uh, next time on September 4th, we will look at verses 7 through 10. And maybe I'll just as a... <laughs> As a treat, I'll try, to, I'll, I'll try to prep up verses 11 through 15. Maybe we'll get through them, maybe we won't. But uh, we'll stop here for now. Thank you.